sermon on Second Kings, How Far the Fall. Because in this book, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel and Judah will fall. They will be conquered by Assyria and Babylon, respectively. And there will essentially cease to be a national people of God. There will still be a, a people of God, the Israelites, but they'll, they'll not be a sovereign nation anymore. They'll, at the end of this book, be taken off into captivity into different nations of the world. Consider just a few hundred years before when the kingdom of Israel seemed to be at its pinnacle with the second of its kings, David, uh, the one by whom all other kings are sort of measured, and how wealthy the kingdom was and how well-respected around the world the kingdom of Israel was at Solomon's reign. And then just after Solomon's death, the kingdom splits into two, and there's this very quick downhill slide into apostasy and faithlessness. How far the fall? It's a pretty far fall for the people of Israel and the people of Judah. And we'll learn some things and be warned by some things uh, in their lives, uh, in the life of these two nations as we work through Second Kings. But I think we'll also be encouraged by the hope that God uh, gives to his people as we move along. Now, the particulars, getting to your note sheet there, the particulars of Second Kings are very similar to that of First Kings. Uh, Regarding the author, there's no stated author. There's no byline in Kings. Um, one ancient Jewish tradition, as we saw uh, last month, has Jeremiah as the final author of Kings. Jeremiah was that uh, prophet who was taken into exile as part of his call to be a prophet to God's people. And so some think that it was Jeremiah who, uh, who wrote uh, these two books of history for the people of Israel, that they might remember where they came from, how far they fall, how far they fell, so that they might not uh, uh, repeat those mistakes when God brings them back into their land. The date of the events of Kings take place from the end of David's reign, uh, um, shortly after 1000 BC or so, until the Babylonian exile. Um, so ranging uh, between the dates of 970 and 586 BC. You know that BC counts down and AD counts up, and I have a hard time doing the math in BC. I can do AD math, but I can't do BC math, so don't ask me how many years 970 to 586 is. My brain doesn't work that direction. Someone else will know. 300 and some odd years. Almost 400 years. The date of its writing, the date of the writing of First and Second Kings, because they are two, two volumes of the same book, cannot be earlier than the 6th century B.C. because the details uh, at the end of Second Kings take place sometime around 561 B.C. when the people of Judah are taken into exile by Babylon. It's possible that earlier traditions were added to and adapted throughout the period of the exile until the return of the Hebrews to their homeland um, just about 70 years after they went into exile. Kings, in summary, tells the history of Israel's division and decline and their ultimate fall away from God in the four centuries after David's reign. Beginning with Solomon's entertainment of worship of false gods in Israel, we saw that last month, the nation will be divided into two parts. Continual sins of idolatry and perverted worship of the true God will ultimately bring the judgment and discipline of God to bear upon his people. First and second Kings written to an exiled or a post exilic Israel reminds the Hebrews not to go back to the slavery of idolatry and instead to move forward in repentance and holiness before God. The themes of second Kings are much like the themes of first Kings 
Uh, again, first, God alone is worthy of worship. That continues to be true in this second volume of the, uh, of the, of the king's work. And the second theme that I see that, that kind of comes to the fore in 2 Kings is that there is hope for those who repent of sin and turn in obedience to God. That as bad as things get, there is still hope for those who repent and turn in obedience to God. In the scope of redemption history, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, looking at all that God does in history from the beginning to the very end, Second Kings, in terms of its theme and, and even its timing, falls squarely in that area around, fall, around the fall of man and, and the lead up to redemption. There is a, and ought to be in our hearts, a deep desire for redemption, a longing for redemption by the time we get to the end of Second Kings because the picture that is painted is just rather quite bleak. As you read Kings on your own, know that it is historical narrative. It's telling the story of a people, the history of a people, but it's telling it in sort of story form. We're not getting bullet points. We're actually getting a story uh, told to us. It is a true story, and yet it is still uh, a story. There is little in the way of instructive material in historical narrative all throughout Scripture. Uh, not a lot of do this, don't do this. But instead, there's a lot with regard to learning about God's character and what he's like and how he deals with people, particularly the people of Israel. We learn from the examples, positively and negatively, of people in uh, books of historical narrative. And so I find it extremely helpful when studying kings to ask questions like, and we've asked these of uh, these questions of all of our historical narrative books so far, of which many of them have been in the Old Testament. But ask yourself, ask of the text, what is this text telling me about God and his character? You will find a lot of that in Kings. What does this text reveal about God's relationship to Israel and also to the church? What does he expect of his people and how does he deal with them when they sin or when they're faithful? What does this text reveal about how God deals with individual people? So corporately and then also individually. Think about the lessons that you can learn from how God, what you know about God and how he deals with people in Second Kings. Think about how those may apply to your own life. Where do some of those truths intersect with your own life? Is God calling you to repentance? Is God encouraging you for, for holiness? Is God doing and, and shaping your, doing something in your life, shaping you to, to, to learn something particularly special for, that, that, that can be used for his glory? Second Kings in outline is um, is not quite as simple as First Kings. First Kings we have you know about twelve or thirteen chapters of Solomon's life, and then a few chapters of of kind of life in Israel after Solomon in the divided kingdom, and then uh, it kind of wraps up with the character of Ahab. But in Second Kings we go through a a proverbial laundry list of kings, both in Israel and in Judah, and the narrative switches back and forth between Israel and Judah a lot. I mean, it's just flipping back and forth constantly. So the simplest outline I could make of the Book of Kings was the one that you have there in your note sheet of the death of Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, in the first chapter. In chapters two through ten, maybe the longest sort of contiguous portion of kings. You have uh, the prophet Elisha, the one who follows Elijah, or as one said to me this morning, Elisha, depending on um, uh, if, you're, if you're trying to pronounce it like a Hebrew or you're just trying to read the Bible out loud. Uh, you get Elisha in Israel uh, and, and his ministry to the northern kingdom there. 
Then you have the king of uh, Joash and the story of Joash after that in chapters 11 and 12. Then between 13 and 15, you get a, a quick list of many kings and a fast downward slide in Israel and some in Judah as well. And so by chapter 15, Israel, the northern kingdom, is crumbling. Bits of it are being taken off by um, enemy nations and, uh, and, and, and conquered in that way. In chapters 15 and 16, we have the beginning of the end for Judah. Uh, Ahaz, one of the kings of Judah, builds uh, an altar that matches the altar uh, to an Assyrian god in Damascus. And he builds it there in Jerusalem and offers sacrifices on it, which ought to foreshadow for us bad things to come. In chapter 17, and we'll spend a good bit of time here in a little bit later, we see the fall of Israel and why they fell and, and God's explanation as to why the nation of Israel, the, the northern kingdom, finally fell, was, was conquered by Assyria. After that, the narrative shifts almost solely to the southern kingdom of Judah. And in chapters 18 through 20, we have a little bit of hope, a little bit of hope with King Hezekiah. And it seems that things may turn around for Judah. But then Hezekiah dies and his son Manasseh and then Manasseh's son Ammon uh, rise to the throne and they lead the southern kingdom of Judah into unmitigated disaster. We'll look at their reigns and the way that they led the kingdom of Israel here in just a moment and you'll find it particularly uh, disturbing. Then again, there's a, a little glimmer of hope in chapters 22 and 23 with King Josiah, who came to be king when he was just eight years old, and he would lead massive reforms in the nation uh, of Judah. He would have the, the law of the Lord would be rediscovered in the temple during his reign. He would read the law out loud in front of the people of Israel, leading or the people of Judah, leading the whole kingdom to repentance. They would be, they would reinstitute the Passover, which had not been uh, observed in Israel since the days of the judges. And so with Je Josiah, we're looking at him, we're going, man, this, things are going to go really, really well for Judah. And then Josiah dies, and his son takes the throne and leads the nation into unmitigated disaster yet again, so that in chapters 23 through 25, we see the fall of Judah and the Babylonian exile of the people therein. How far the fall? Second Kings is, first of all, a story of disaster. If you're the kind of person who likes to rubberneck going down the freeway when you see a wreck on the side of the road, you'll love Second Kings because there's a lot to rubberneck over. It's like, it's like watching a train wreck in slow motion. Second Kings is nothing if not a story of moral, spiritual, and ultimately national disaster. The second volume of the history of the kings of Israel picks up where the first volume, first kings, left off, but with a far more complicated storyline. First kings covers roughly the first 70 years of the divided kingdom after Solomon. So first kings, first 70 years. It covers the reign of four kings in Judah and seven kings in the northern kingdom of Israel. But second kings covers the next 300 years of history, including the remaining 12 kings of Israel until their fall to Assyria in 731 BC and the remaining 16 kings of Judah until they fall to Babylon in 586 BC. As you read second kings, you'll want to do so slowly in order to keep track of the shifting narrative because with so many kings, it shifts a lot. The writer of Second Kings will usually stick with one nation, Israel or Judah, for a while until a king or a series of kings dies, and then he'll switch to the other kingdom and detail what happened there. 
for the most part. Second Kings follows the history of Israel and Judah in chronological order, often with some overlap between the two kingdoms and the kings that reign there. But in all of it, one theme stands above the rest. This is a story of disaster. The the disaster that takes place in Israel and Judah has everything to do with the perverted worship of God by the addition of worship to other false gods alongside him. This is the really very interesting aspect of the fall of Israel and Judah, that they did not wholly forsake God, but that they thought it would be right, it would be okay, it would be even helpful to supplement the worship of Yahweh, the one true God, with the worship of other regional deities as well. If one God is good, well, half a dozen or a dozen must be better. The tragedy of Second Kings is that the very people that God had called and had saved out of slavery in Egypt to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, like Exodus 19 says, to reflect God's holy character among the idolatrous people of Canaan, have themselves become reflections of the people of Canaan and the surrounding nations. There's at one point in the life of Israel in the northern kingdom, a glimmer of hope in one king named Jehu. Jehu is told through the servant of the prophet Elisha that he will become king. And so Jehu conspires to assassinate Joram, the king of Israel, and the grandson of Ahab, that wicked king at the end of 1 Kings. And Jehu is declared king in his place. Jehu will will ultimately uh, uh, go to uh, where Jezebel, that wicked, horrible woman, wife of Ahab, was dwelling. And he would rally the eunuchs, the servants of Jezebel, to throw her out of a window to her death. And all the townspeople shouted for victory. And uh, Jehu will destroy all the descendants of Ahab and slaughter all the prophets of Baal. Jehu is systematically rooting out the disobedience of Ahab and his descendants. And so we read in 2 Kings chapter 10, verses 28 through 32. Thus Jehu wiped Baal from Israel. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he had made Israel to sin. That is the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But catch verse 31. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. And in those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Jehu's reforms, his vengeance that he takes out upon those who previously led the people of Israel into disobedience would not last for very long, neither would they be complete. And so every king that follows Jehu, uh, of them it will be said in Israel that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's mentioned in chapter 13, verse 2, 13, 11, 14, 24, 15, 9, 15, 18, 15, 24, 15, 28, 17, 2. Each of these kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, of whom the words on their tombstone would say, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so by the time we get to chapter 17 of 2 Kings, and I know we're covering a lot of ground very quickly, but it's really just one bad king after another, after another, after another in Israel. By the time we get to 2 Kings chapter 17, we get the description of how Israel, that northern kingdom, finally falls, is conquered, and the description as to why. 
This is Second Kings chapter 17, beginning in verse 2. Or excuse me, beginning in verse 6. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, that is the northern kingdom of Israel. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria, and he placed them in Hala, and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and the cities of the Medes. Now here in the following verses, why this happened. This occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did, whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. But they were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false And they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel. And he removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. We read in the verses that follow, though. Ultimately, Judah also did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. But they walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the land of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. And when he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nabat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. Israel falls. And Judah, in the long run, does not fare much better. Judah will survive as a kingdom for another 150 years after Israel falls, but they too will be plagued with kings who do evil in the sight of the Lord. Chief among them are two, Ahaz and Manasseh. Of Ahaz the king, we read in 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 1-4, through 4, these words. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, Ahaz the son of Jotham, the king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Listen to this. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. 
And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. So bad is the idolatry of both Israel and Judah that they are literally burning their children in the fire as sacrifices to false gods. Some 30 years later, a king named Manasseh will come to the throne. And we read of Manasseh in 2 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 through 15. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Again, this is a king of Judah, not a king of Israel, king of the southern kingdom, who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers. If only they will be careful to do according to all I've commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. The end result of Judah will be the same as Israel. Chapter 17 of Kings Details the fall of Israel. Chapter 24 details the fall of Judah. Chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, we read, In the days of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up. And Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. They entered into a peace treaty. Jehoiakim was uh, paying tribute to Nebuchadnezzar to keep Nebuchadnezzar from uh, ransacking the entire kingdom. Then Jehoiakim turned and rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, and the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians, and bands of the Moadites, and bands of the Ammonites. And he sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. Surely we cannot overlook the deep and abiding danger of sin in Second Kings. In all the most graphic of ways, sin is shown for its true ugliness in this book. The sins of the people of God in Second Kings should frighten us. Not because they are scary and graphic, although certainly because they are scary and graphic, but also because each of us is vulnerable to fall in the same ways and worse. Let us beware as we read Second Kings that we are much better than Israel or Judah, lest we turn and do the same. This much is true in Second Kings, that God cares enough about his name and his reputation in the world that are reflected by his people, that he will punish his people publicly in order to redeem his glory from the midst of our sin. This is a powerful warning then to two groups today. First, to the one who is not a Christian, to the unbeliever. If you're assuming that your sins, no matter how small, are inconsequential, then you have radically misunderstood the infinite holiness and perfection of God 
Any deviation from his holiness is an infinitely large affront to his character. And to the Christian, beware, 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 beware that you not forsake God, that you not take up the worship of this world, but rather that you remain faithful to him. And a warning for all sinners, a call to all sinners, turn in repentance to God, seek his grace. Because he says, if we follow in his steps, if we'll be faithful to him, there is salvation and restoration to be had. But if you'll continue in unrepentance, there is only destruction, punishment, discipline waiting for you. Second Kings is a story of disaster. But within Second Kings, there are a few glimmers of hope along the way. Second Kings though it is a disaster story, is not without some hope through the continued presence of God among his people. And that through at least three different individuals. First, the prophet Elisha. If we could say that there's any one primary character of second Kings, I mean, there's like 29 Kings that are mentioned, but if any one character is primary, it would be the prophet Elijah, the one who followed his, his uh, mentor, if you will, Elijah. After Elijah is taken to heaven without seeing death in the presence of Elisha, Elisha begins his own powerful uh, prophetic ministry. And so from chapters 2 through 10 of 2 Kings, we see scene after scene after scene of God's power demonstrated in Elisha. There's a miracle of, of oil where Elisha meets this widow who has no money to pay off the debts that her husband had incurred. And so he tells her to go and take the little bit of oil that she has in a flask and start filling up jars. And so she starts filling up jars until the jars are full. She runs out of jars. She gets some more jars. She fills those until they're full. Then she sells the jars of oil, uh, takes the money, pays off her debts, and, uh, and then is able to live off the rest. Elisha, or God, I should say, through Elisha, uh, gives the miracle of conception to a woman who is thought to be barren and unable to have children. This son who comes to this woman and her husband as a blessing dies just a few verses later in chapter 4, verses uh, 18 through 37. But Elisha comes on the scene and he raises that son from the dead. In the same chapter 4, Elijah will purify a poison stew so that the, the other uh, sort of prophetic students that are uh, walking along with him can eat and not die. He'll cause an axe head to float up from the bottom of a river in chapter 6. But the greatest of all the miracles in Elisha's life, I think, is the healing of a man named Naaman, a commander of the army of Syria. He's a Gentile. In chapter 5, Naaman is a leper, is a skin disease. And on one of his military raids in the northern kingdom of Israel, he captures an Israelite girl who tells him that Elisha can heal him. So Naaman goes to Elisha and he's commanded to dip in the Jordan, to wash himself in the Jordan River. By Naaman's estimation, the Jordan is a rather grimy river compared to those of Syria. Uh, if somebody said to you, just go dunk your head a few times in the Rio Grande, you might balk at that a little bit. You might would say, why not Lake Tahoe? It's much cleaner. And so that's kind of Naaman's response here. What, the Jordan, really? That dirty river? And so he, he goes off, uh, in, intent not to dip in that river, but he is persuaded. And so he goes and he washes himself in the Jordan River at Elisha's command, and he's healed. All of his leprosy gone. The glimmer of hope is less in Elisha's power that is given to him by God. And I think in the case of Naaman, that glimmer of hope is more in the response of this Gentile commander. In 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 15 through 17, 
we get the response of this Gentile, previously pagan king to all that God has done in his life. Second Kings five, verse 15. And Naaman returned to the man of God, Elisha, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And Naaman urged him to take it, but Elisha refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant, to me, two mules load of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but to the Lord. This is a really cool and dramatic conversion of a Gentile pagan king. This commander of the Syrian army has been healed by the Lord and recognizes it and wants to worship the Lord and go back even to his home country, which is full of pagans and there only worship the Lord. The glimmer of hope is not so much in, I don't think, Elisha's miraculous power, although there is some hope there, but but in the hope of this Gentile commander who comes to know the Lord and to give his life to him. That salvation is not just for the people of Israel, but God is extending his, his kingdom in the world, even to Gentiles like Naaman. There's hope in Elisha and in his interaction with Naaman. There's, there's hope in kings also, in that king we mentioned before, Hezekiah. Though his father was Ahaz, a man of great evil, Hezekiah will reign in justice and repentance in Judah. We read in summary of Hezekiah's reign in 2 Kings 18, verses 3 through 8, these words. I know we're kind of playing Bible drill here, so uh, keep along with me as you can. 2 Kings 18, 3 through 8. Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That's not something we hear enough of in Kings. According to all that David, his father, had done. He removed the high places and he broke the pillars and he cut down the Asherah and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made for until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses and the Lord was with him wherever he went out. He prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. Hezekiah, a man who does what is right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done before him. A man who tears down all the symbols and signs uh, of false worship and tears down the altars to false gods and leads the people of Israel to do what is right is shown to prosper in the hands of the Lord. The Lord prospers his reign. There is hope with Hezekiah. We see that when, when leaders of God's people lead them to repentance, the Lord answers in mercy according to his promises. <clears throat> now, I know that the writer of Kings says of Hezekiah that there was none like him in all the kings of Judah before him or after him. But I think there's one after him who's a lot like him. And maybe in my estimation, I'm not going to argue with scripture, but in my estimation, maybe even a little bit better. And that is the King Josiah in whom there is massive hope for the people of Judah. More than any other King of Judah, Josiah offers, I, I think the greatest example for hope and repentance. Like Hezekiah, Josiah's father, Ammon was wicked 
And his grandfather was Manasseh, that horrible guy who uh, was sacrificing children to false gods. The worst of all the kings of Judah. Yet Josiah, the son and grandson of wicked, wicked kings, is totally different. Josiah will become king when he's only eight years old. And then 16 years later, when he's 24, the priest, Hilkiah, will find in the temple the long-lost scroll of the law of Moses. Genesis through Deuteronomy. Can you imagine going several hundred years without any knowledge of the word of God? And then all of a sudden, like a pastor coming out from the baptistry prep room. And he goes, you guys will never guess what I found in the middle of all that junk. That's what happens in Judah. The priest comes out of the temple and says to Josiah, you'll never guess what I found collecting dust. It's a copy of the law of Moses. And Hilkiah will bring it to Josiah and he reads it to him. So 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 11 through 13. Read this. Hilkiah comes and he reads the book before the king. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes, a sign of mourning, a sign of repentance. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the priest and Ahikam, the son of Shaphan and Akbor, the son of Micaiah and Shaphan, the secretary and Asiah, the king's servant saying, this is the king Josiah saying to all these guys, go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. And many think that the portion of the law that was read to Josiah that day was the last part of the book of Deuteronomy where God instructs his people through Moses saying, if you'll keep my commandments, if you'll do as I have commanded you to do, I will bring you blessing and prosperity. You'll live long in the land. But if you don't, if you disobey me, if you forsake me, if you serve other gods, these are all the curses I will bring to bear upon the land. And, and there are like three times as many curses as there are blessings in Deuteronomy. And so many think that what was read to Josiah was this Um, What was this portion of Deuteronomy of the covenant curses against the people of Israel if they did not obey the Lord? And so Josiah is looking at the kingdom around him and at Israel, the kingdom of the north has just been taken off uh, by Assyria. And he's going, we're in deep trouble here, guys. Everything that the Lord has said he would do, he's doing. We have we must repent. We don't have any option but to repent. And so we read in chapter 23. Verses 1 through 3, that the king Josiah sent and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all the priests and the prophets. All the people, both small and great. And he, the king, read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and he made a covenant between before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. Later in the same chapter, we read the king's commandment to the people. Chapter 23, verse 21 Josiah commanded all the people saying, keep the Passover to the Lord, your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. 
For no such Passover has been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers. Necromancers are people who talk to the dead. And the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem. That he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might. According to all the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him. Josiah's reforms, though great and repentant and good and setting a pattern of faithfulness for the people of Judah that will come after him. Though he does all these great reforms, these reforms will not last very long beyond his own death. But they do offer a glimmer of hope that with the revival of the law, the people have now a renewed path for knowing and worshiping God rightly again. Not a path that they didn't have before, but a path that they had forgotten, that they had forsaken, that they had you know, thrown into the trash heap. After Josiah's death, his son and sons after him will lead the nation of Judah to ruin and ultimately to uh, exile uh, by the people of Babylon. But while in exile, the people of Judah, the people of Israel, will have a place to look again. They'll be reminded now of the law of God, the covenant that he made with his people at Mount Sinai. A place to look, knowledge to be regained, to help them to begin to repent should they fail yet again. The pattern that Josiah sets will be a pattern that we will want for the people of Israel and for Judah to continue after they return to the land some 70 years after their exile with the leaders Ezra and Nehemiah. But it's going to take 70 years of refining in exile for God to get his people ready to return and serve him in faithfulness again. The story of Second Kings is a story of disaster. But there are glimmers of hope and signs to good news in the middle of the disaster of Second Kings. The good news of the disaster that is the... This part of the history of Israel and Judah is that though the book ends with the exile and devastating punishment of the people of Israel, God does not leave his people without his law. And he does not leave them without a path for repentance and for restoration. A path that will be followed, but it's going to take seven more decades. Second Kings doesn't end on the most encouraging of notes. Doesn't end with the most faithful of kings. But it does end with the most faithful of gods. God who does not totally wipe out or destroy his people. A God who does not leave his people without a means of repentance and restoration. But a good God who does all of those things. Who endures and suffers with his beloved people. Even allowing them to be disciplined for their faithlessness. That he might bring them back in repentance and restoration. So then how do we see Christ in 2 Kings? How do we make that connection from 2 Kings to Jesus, to the King of Kings? I want to point us to just two truths. The first is this, that Jesus is the hope of Israel. Not just the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, but all the people of Israel. He's the hope of Israel. He is the one means of salvation for all of these people. 
In 2 Kings 25, verses 27 through 30, we read this, that in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, uh, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. So Jehoiachin, uh, king of Judah, is taken into exile. He's in prison there in Babylon. And during one of the kings of uh, Babylon's reign, he is freed from prison. And the king of Babylon spoke kindly to Jehoiachin and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king of Babylon's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, according to his daily needs, as long as he lived. That's how Second Kings ends, with this king of Judah in exile, but eating at the table of the king of Babylon. The people of Judah are not doomed forever. There is some hope yet. There is still uh, a person in the line of David through whom a king forever will come to sit on the throne of Israel. And look at what we read in Matthew chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph. Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Some familiar names. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh was the father of uh, Amos, and Amos was the father of Josiah, and Josiah was the father of Jeconiah, which is the same name as Jehoiakim, or Jehoiachin. It's a, um, uh, just a, a rewording of the same name. Josiah, the father of Jehoiachin and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. From Jeconiah, from, from Jehoiachin, will continue down through 14 more generations until we get to Jesus, born son of Joseph, who traces lineage through Joseph. At the end of Second Kings, there is still one king of Judah remaining alive, who is eating at the place of favor with the king of Babylon. God has not forsaken his people. He is still going to bring a king in the line of David to sit on the throne forever. And that king is Jesus, as evidenced in the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1. We look at Second Kings and we are reading the story of the, of the history of all the people in this uh, second portion, second third of Jesus's genealogy and his lineage. God is working in and through the people of Israel and Judah all through this disastrous period of their life in order that he might bring his Messiah, send his son to be born to be king of the Jews. Jesus is the hope of Israel and Jesus is the hope of the nations. We saw in 2 Kings chapter 5, this Gentile Syrian commander, army commander, come to faith in the one true God as he's healed by washing himself in the Jordan. He forsakes his pagan gods to worship only Yahweh. God already is showing himself to be a God of the nations in Second Kings. But then we read this in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. That Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up and he read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Jesus unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives 
and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him, and they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your own hometown as well. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, the days of the kings, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel, Second Kings, around chapter 5, in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian, the Gentile pagan. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Jesus in his earthly ministry is unafraid to say to his own hometown people, that God is a God of the Gentiles as well. And as Gentiles receive the good news of the kingdom, as they repent in sin and trust in, in God's Messiah, that they too will be saved. And the people in Jesus' day did not like that. But just because they didn't like it doesn't mean it isn't true. And praise God, good many of us in this room who are not of Jewish origin, not of Jewish heritage, but of Gentile heritage, have come into the blessing of God through faith in Jesus, who is the hope not only of Israel, but who is the hope of all the nations. And tonight we get to celebrate again together, as we do so regularly, the truth of the gospel. And a reminder that Christ gave his life, his body broken, his blood shed, that we might receive the hope of Israel and the hope of the nations. That we might receive salvation as we turn from our sin and place faith in Jesus Christ. This little bit of bread that we eat signifying his body.